The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Steve Schooner. Steve is a Nash Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. Um, and Steve is is going to join the show today talking in about sustainability and procurement and where things are headed and why it is important. Um, Steve, welcome to the show. Great to be back, Roger. Thanks for having me. Well, um, about this time last year, um, or the fall of 2020 at least, uh, you were on the show and we did a whole a show talking about sustainability, why it's important, you know, strategies um, and challenges within the federal procurement environment to support sustainability. So I thought it'd be great to have you back on the show and talk about where we are now. And so where are we now? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's fascinating because on the one hand, it feels like a whole new ball game. But in the bigger picture, uh, we're still losing the game. It's late in the game. We're running out of innings, and we need to really get cracking. But there are a lot of differences. Now, obviously, the biggest difference is the change in administrations. The United States has rejoined the Paris Agreement. Uh, We've seen a staggering number of relevant executive orders. So it's not just that the administration isn't in denial and that they're acknowledging the need to address climate change, but they're showing a pretty dramatic commitment to deal with it. Now, the kind of thing is, the kind of interesting thing is, there are a lot of steps that are really exciting, but as I'll get to just in a second, it's the actionability thing that's really an issue. But, for example, we now have a relatively high visibility federal um, uh, sustainability officer, and that's Andrew Mayock, located in the Council of Economic um, the Council of Environmental Quality, and he's quite engaged and they're putting out a lot of good content. And, you know, for our community, the National Contract Management Association, we've now got a community of practice. But I think that one of the reasons that you're feeling like there's a little bit more momentum is there's more reports, there's more science, and there's a lot more empirical personal information. So, you know, from a good news perspective, there seems to be less debate or there seems to be greater scientific consensus. We're now at the point where 99.9% of the scientists agree and most of the doubters have been debunked. Uh, But the bad news, and this is the really scary thing, is that so much of the prior science was overly conservative or, as we say, too modest. The scientists didn't want to overreach. And so what that means today is a lot of the projections as to how much time we had left and how bad it was going to be, um, it's actually not as, we don't have as much time as they said they were. Now, um, there's also a really encouraging trend. We're seeing a lot of good growth in leadership and advocacy. Uh, sadly, a lot of that is coming from children and young people and predominantly women. And one of the key messages is that our governments, not just in the United States, but around the world, have kind of dropped the ball. But now let's go just to what we see, right? What have we all experienced? What do we see in the news every day? 
all of the things that you fear about climate change, whether they're storms or heat or floods or fire or whatever it is, they've all gotten worse in the last year. And it's not just that they're more dramatic, but there's more of them. So all of the things that we knew were coming, we're getting more and more experience with them. Uh, I will say this, the, the most depressing thing about all this, you know, because so much of this affects the next generation more than us, is there's now a massive longitudinal study, mostly driven from the United Kingdom, but sampling people all over the world, younger people, kids, teens, young people in their 20s are increasingly anxious and depressed and flummoxed by climate change. And what they're most unhappy with and what they don't understand is why their parents and the politicians just don't seem to care. So it seems like, you know, for them, this is the defining issue of their generation and they can't figure out why the people in power, the people in charge, the people who can vote don't seem to want to do anything about it. Oh, yeah. The last thing I should mention is after 20 years of drying, driving hybrid Priuses, I finally sold my hybrid. Now I'm driving an electric vehicle. But in any event, you have more important things. So to talk uh, well, which, which one do you have? Uh, I ended up buying the Kia Nero EV, and it won't surprise you as an academic. I did a lot of research. And, sure. you know, <laughs> it, it, it's not a Tesla, you know, smaller, less expensive, but it gets really, really great reviews. And technologically, it's a marvel. So it's really kind of fun. Well, congratulations on that. Um, <laughs> so, Steve, when you talk about the change administrations and there's executive orders and now, you know, there's a point person in the Environmental Council um, who's sort of leading the, the overarching. Chief sustainability officer, yes. Chief, okay, chief. And each agency has one of those as well. Is that, I mean, sort of the way it rolled? I'd just like to get your sense of having worked in the government and long observed the government the rollout of some of these things. So, so for example, GSA has a sustainability, um, you know, officer, um, environmental person sort of leading their charge. And they're trying to figure things out. You know, how long does it take for an administration to really, you know, get the roots in the, in the bureaucracy, right. To, to change the thinking and focus and, um, and basically, you know, how people operate. Well, the short answer to your question is, as we all know, it takes too long. But, you know, to the, to, the, to the way you asked the question, I mean, let's be honest and give GSA a little bit of credit. GSA, other than EPA, is way out ahead of the curve. I mean, they have tremendously valuable tools, and I encourage listeners to go and check some of them out. But you can go to the federal supply schedules and shop with an environmentally friendly marketplace They've got the SF tool, the sustainable facility tool, which is literally an information marvel. So I think the GSA in many ways is ahead. And because they're the nation's landlord, they're fully engaged in the lead, the LEED construction industry. So, so GSA is much better positioned than many of the agencies. Obviously, EPA is doing great. In some ways, the Defense Department is the classic double-edged sword. So on the one hand, the Defense Department is arguably the world's most significant emissions generator. And one of the most disturbing thing about most of the global pledges with regard to reductions of emissions is they tend to exclude defense. But bottom line is the Defense Department is a massive 
massive problem in this regard. But of course, there's the complicated balance issue. Now, along those lines, back to your so question. So, Steve, just, oh, just yeah. but on the DOD, as I understand it, though, they, you know, they are, there's a, that's a huge challenge, but they do recognize it's a challenge for them as well. You know, whether it's whether it's where bases are located and what's it mean, you know. Right. Um, so let me just say three quick things about DOD. Okay. So y- you are correct that they're aware of it. And the one thing that DOD is way out ahead of a lot of folks on is when we talk about the difference between adaptation and mitigation. So what you were saying, one of the problems with climate change is we have to deal with it, whether or not we slow it down. Yes, we're going to have to raise our ports. We're going to need um, runways that won't melt further north. So all these kinds of things. So DOD is way out ahead of a lot in terms of planning for the worst case scenario. Another really positive note is DOD's primary point person on this, Richard Kidd, is extremely articulate and very, very effective on these topics. And he's spoken to the acquisition community already and it's very very clear that he understands defense acquisition and how difficult it is and how complicated it is to balance some of these issues Um, the last thing i'll mention and i think we might have talked about this last year but for folks who are interested in defense there's a great book by michael clare called all hell breaking loose and basically what that book was about is in the last administration when the government wasn't allowed to say climate change DOD knew it was important, so they were focused on it anyway. But when we talk about the parade of horribles that will come from climate change, for the Defense Department, it's possibly having to fight a naval battle on the top of the globe in a place where there didn't used to be an ocean. It's dealing with what is likely going to be the greatest acceleration in human migration ever because as food shortages and water shortages increase, People are going to move, and that's going to impinge upon borders. And basically, our military is going to be stretched too thin with humanitarian efforts and migration and, frankly, um, you know, border-type issues. So the Defense Department realizes that this is their elephant in the room, and in many ways, they're thinking about it more proactively than others. But by the same token, they're part of the problem, so it's really tough. Well, Steve, you know what? We're right up on the break already. So, and when we come back, I, I want to shift a little bit to talk about, you know, you, you, it's a good segue because we can talk about a real scenario that's taken place. I know at our fall conference just uh, about a month ago, you talked about Vancouver and what they've been experiencing out there. So we'll start with that when we come back and just, you know, it's, it's that sort of adaptation. We have to think about that. And also, you know, you know, this is this is a case study of what what's what potentially could be coming. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He's Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He is a Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement at the George Washington University Law School. And we're talking about sustainability and federal procurement. Um, and uh, Steve, um, I mentioned just before the break that uh, at our fall conference, you did a talk on sustainability and procurement, what folks need to be thinking about strategies to 
trying to, you know, bring that sensitivity and um, opportunities to shape things in the procurement system. And you spoke a lot about Vancouver, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, yeah, in Canada, <laughs> and what it's what what they're experiencing out there. Can you talk a little bit about that first? Sure. And first, again, let me say thanks so much for having me at the conference. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to speak with the community and always love getting the feedback from others. Um, but one of the reasons that, to me, Vancouver is so fascinating is that we don't talk about it. And most Americans don't see it on the news and it's not in the newspapers. But just take a step back for a second. I realize most of your listeners probably haven't been to Vancouver, but we're talking about a city that is similar in population to the District of Columbia. This is a modern city. They have a big international airport. They've got pro sports teams. They've got universities. So we're not talking about a backwater. But their story in the last few months is one of the most unbelievable climate change adaptation harbingers or warnings. It's a pretty good indication of what's coming. But my key point here again is we're not talking about it. It's not on the news. You don't hear about it every day. So let's just kind of take a quick step back. In Vancouver today, there is no access from the city to the rest of Canada currently unless you can fly. Because as a, and again, it was a series of things. As many of you know, we had one of the worst seasons of uh, forest fires we've had in a long time. So with the forest fires, what happens is it basically makes flooding worse, but more importantly, the potential to hold uh, material up on the sides of hills and mountains, bottom line stuff comes sliding down when you've burnt down all the trees in the ground cover. But bottom line is Vancouver has systematically lost bridge after bridge after bridge. And so they're at the point now where if you're in a car, the only way to get out of Vancouver is through the United States. And obviously that's not very easy right now. But imagine being in a major international city and being cut off by from all roads because the bridges are gone. And they brought in a temporary bridge a few months ago and that one got washed away too. So the last time I checked, uh, the, the morning of the conference, there were over 1,500 rail cars that couldn't get into the city. Now, the good news is they have a port, okay? So they're not going to starve and people can fly in there. But here's the key thing. In the future, we're going to see more and more storms, floods, fires, and heat. And over time, there's going to be more and more food and water shortages and health issues. And so the question is, what are we doing about it? Now, to the point you made earlier, the current issue in Vancouver is adaptation dealing with it. So climate change makes fires worse. The fires made the floods worse. Now they're basically cut off. How do they deal with it? Okay. But the other issue that we want to think about is how do we make this happen in fewer cities in the future when we know that from a science standpoint, the rate at which this stuff is going to happen is only going to increase. Now, without getting too far afield, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, but for many people, the logical starting point as to how we were going to adapt and mitigate on these things was in the last couple of years, we've had a global pandemic. The pandemic was a great way to assess our ability as a nation, as a global community to address large scale crises. 
Well, unfortunately, based on that, we may be doomed, right? But I, I, don't, I don't want to just digress into utter depression here. But these are massive group action problems. And the fact that we've become desensitized to what could happen in a place like Vancouver. I mean, sure, we saw it in Puerto Rico. We've seen it in a number of other places. But, you know, Katrina happened. We got used to that. But natural disaster after natural disaster, and there's only going to be more of them. The question is, what do we do about it? So I thought it was a really interesting case study, given the fact that the scale is enormous and it doesn't even register on the news quotient right now. So, yes, what are we going to do about it? So let's turn to the procurement community. Um, what does this all mean for procure, for federal procurement? Well, so that's, that's a big question, Steve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and the most interesting thing about it is you've basically got two totally different experiences. And sometimes we're used to this and sometimes we're not. But this is a, I don't want to call it a binary or a dichotomy between buy and the sell side. But one of the things that government officials often don't appreciate is the private sector, the major players are already fully engaged on this. And most of them are way ahead of the United States government in thinking about climate change. So it's very, very common for larger companies to be talking about, to be focusing, to be obsessing about ESG or environmental, social and corporate governance. Most big companies that you're aware of are focused on their carbon footprint and the increasingly popular nomenclature or vocabulary that we talk about is measuring the social cost of greenhouse gases. Now, we could talk more about this stuff later, but, you know, in the economics literature, what most of us studied in college is what we're really talking about are externalities or effects the things that weren't intended or part of the bargain. So for example, you buy an automobile, you pay a price for it, but nobody pays for the pollution or nobody pays for the global warming. That's the externality. That's what we're trying to measure now. There's some really interesting work being done on with what the EPA refers to as scope one, two, and three emissions. Most firms are pretty cognizant with what their scope one emissions look are that's their direct um, output. And then scope two is the obvious stuff that entails getting it to them and basically redistributing it. And scope three is their entire supply chain. So the most sophisticated firms are increasingly focusing on scope one, two, and three emissions. And I think that's where the trend's heading. If we want to take a big step back, though, for folks who are new to this, I think the most interesting trend here is what we refer to as SBT or SBTI, and that's Science-Based Targets or the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And they are, in effect, becoming the global standard for how firms measure their environmental impact. So bottom line is, going back to your question, the private sector is thinking about it, they know it's important, and most of them see it as an issue that's going to become the competitive battleground in the future. Now, put aside the greenwashing and the whitewashing that you're getting from the oil and gas companies, but most producers realize that buyers are going to want them to be less harmful than their competitors in the future. So they're on that. Now, as for the government, we got our work cut out for us. Uh, so Steve, just let me oh, go sure. back to something. That, so I wanted yeah. to ask you about the social cost of greenhouse gases and how you 
how you actually measure that. And because uh, I, I just was you know, thinking about it as you were talking about it and just so, you know, it's objectively sort of common sense, right? We want clean a cleaner place, right? Most people, right? So you can objectively measure, are, am I uh, polluting less, right? Or, or emitting less over time? And am I taking measures to do that? The flip side of it is, you know, just whether you know, the language of social cost of greenhouse gases is, is you know, how, how hard is it to measure that? And, you know, is there a better language to use that I think would be, I'm just well, wondering I, if it's how I our think, feeling of is how, how that language translates to the general population versus. I think, you, I think you make a great, a great point. Uh, so let, let's use the biggest analogy. If you were to get all the economists in the world together and ask them what the one thing that we should be doing to deal with the climate change, to deal with climate change, they've pretty much come to consensus that the solution is a carbon tax because they believe in markets, they believe in capitalism, they believe in incentives and disincentives. The interesting thing is that if everybody who's really thought about this agrees that a carbon tax is the way to go, you might ask the question, why is it that most governments other than Sweden haven't done it? By the way, the Sweden case study on carbon tax is unbelievably impressive. So not only do most people agree we should do it, but we have empirical evidence that it really, really works. But to your point, why don't we have a good carbon tax? Because saying the word tax is anathema, right? So it's, it's, there's a political revulsion to taxes in the last few decades, particularly in the post-Reagan era. So if the solution is carbon tax, what you might want to say to your question is, what we need to do is create a carbon tax and not use the word tax. Well, it's kind of incredible to be having that conversation, but that's what most of the experts agree right now. So to your point, yes, GHG as an acronym, greenhouse gases, that's a nightmare. Social cost of greenhouse gases, that's brutal. It's one of the reasons why carbon footprint was so popular for a while, but carbon footprint doesn't really encapsulate all of it. So I agree with you. We could probably use better messaging and better nomenclature. Uh, but I think that one of the reasons that greenhouse gases, social cost of greenhouse gases, scope one, two, and three emissions are popular is because you're talking about pretty complicated scientific stuff. And so EPA is the one that came up with the, the tool or the rubric for the difference between scope one emissions. That's all of the direct emissions generated by the institution itself. And then there's scope two. And that's, you know, think of that as the electricity, the heating, the cooling that an institution consumes. But scope three, that's the indirect stuff. That's the upstream and the downstream in the supply chain or the value chain. That's really hard to measure. But what we're really talking about is what's my real impact in terms of greenhouse gases? The other right. thing to your oh sorry. The other no, thing, I was going yeah. I was going to say we have to take a break, Steve. When we okay. come back, we can just save that thought, and then we can turn to the government a little bit. But I, I you know, I guess. I think we I guess we we violently agree words matter and the how you oh, yeah. how you pitch things is really 
how you can move things Absolutely. too, right? So my guest today is Steve Schooner. He's a National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement at George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He's a National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement at the George Washington University Law School. We're talking sustainability and federal procurement and sustainability and climate change in general. Um, and Steve, you I, you had to hold your thought at the last end of the last segment, so I'm going to let you finish that and then really definitely turn to where, where the government is. I, I think a market-driven approach to, you know, to addressing um, emissions and that sort of thing is going to be key to the success in this. I'll just say that generally. Um, we have to f- create those incentives. And, and I think the market will drive incentives when people see they can save money and, and improve their margins over time. You know, it's, it's, it's self-interest that way, both in terms of, you know, saving the planet, but also, you know, success of their business. But anyway, that's my thought. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's no question we agree on incentives and disincentives. And that's really where we need to be going. Command and control is only going to do so much for us. But, but the point I wanted to make right before we stopped, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to come back to this, is when you asked the question originally, you talked about the measuring of the emissions or the harms generated by a manufacturer in terms of pollution. And it's interesting because the history of environmental protection has typically been driven by pollution. So we focus on clean air. We focus on clean water. So we focus on particulates or stuff that we put into the air or into the water. And obviously those are significant. So we do want to reduce carcinogens and that's difficult. But one of the things that's so interesting about what we're experiencing is most of us get the whole pollution. I want to be able to see blue skies. I want to be able to breathe clean air. I want to be able to drink clean water. But the climate change issues, the big climate crisis, is driven by something in addition or parallel or separate and apart from that. So the reality that the, you know, if we lose more polar ice and the sea levels rise, that's not just pollution. That's other impacts, the things that we're going to have to be adapting to. So uh, it's really, really a complicated issue. And so we do have to first reduce pollution, and we also have to reduce the emissions, and we benefit from both of them. Now, I think this really goes to where your next question, though, is what can government do? What are we doing? And where are we going? But um, let me say a couple things on this first. The good news, again, as we said at the beginning, pretty strong, high-level, top-down proclamations from the president, from the Council on Environmental Quality, from the Chief Sustainability Officer, Andrew Mayock, and the like. But we are miles and miles and potentially years away from any real implementation in federal procurement. You know, we're spending $600 billion a year on federal procurement. If it takes us two years to change the way we behave, that means we spent over a trillion dollars that we could have used to be moving markets instead. So the problem is there's not much in the FAR. We'll come back to that later. And what's there isn't very helpful. But the other real problem, and this is, to me, an elephant in the room issue. Think about your average contracting officer, your average contract uh, specialist, 
your 1102, they're pulled in other directions. They've got workload issues. They get pressured to focus on low prices. They're being told by the administration that we need higher domestic content. We need to buy American. They're always pressured to make sure that they redistribute a certain percentage of all contracting dollars to small businesses and minority business and women-owned business and veteran-owned small business. And these are all congressional policies. But the bottom line is something has to be prioritized. So if you think about our normal cycle, how long does it take to get a regulation, get something into policy, implement it, and then start doing the training? We're way too far away. But now I want to go back to what you were saying earlier. Okay, so let's assume for the moment that we agree that we want to buy solutions that pollute less and generate less emissions. As you were saying earlier, that might mean I have to pay a slightly higher price now, but it's going to save me, the government, a lot of money over time, and it's going to make everyone's lives better. Most of the world talks about that now in terms of life cycle cost. So in other words, rather than just focusing on low purchase prices, we think about what do you pay for everything over the life and what are the externalities and the effects? I think that going back to the point you made earlier, though, the biggest one is pollution. If you purchase a solution that pollutes less, over time, the government's health care costs go down because there's less cancer, there's less asthma, um, people are less efficient. Uh, but, you know, so many of these things all basically come together. But the big way that we're going to address all this is we have to basically walk away from the tyranny of low prices. We have to stop doing the kind of thinking that led to the prices paid portal because the price that you pay for something isn't relevant. Look, the best example that we all know is automobiles, right? Um, the Postal Service is out in the middle of a procurement to replace maybe 150,000 postal vehicles. I think most people agree now that most of those vehicles should probably at a minimum be hybrid or even better should be electric. But the biggest challenge that we all have is thinking about our requirements differently. You know, unlike many countries like Germany, it's astounding how few bicycles the United States Postal Service uses. If you look in Germany or other countries around the world, there are massive, massive quantities of cargo bikes, straight pedal bikes and electric bikes. Um, I hope we have some listeners who have been in New York, in Manhattan, anytime in the last year. It's not Geneva yet, but you can't walk anywhere in Manhattan without seeing e-bike deliveries going around. Your Uber and your um, Grubhub, all those people are riding electric bikes now. Those get cars off the road. But part of the thing the Postal Service needs to do is think about their requirements differently. We just can't keep doing the same things we've been so, doing. So, Steve, a, lot, a couple of thoughts there. First of all, you couldn't be more you know, on point with regard to the tyranny of low price. And that's you know, both the regulatory training, and all, but also a cultural issue in a certain sense. When you talk about the federal workforce and federal procurement workforce, um, you can even see it now, you know, with GSA and, you know, we're in a you know, huge inflationary 
you know, a spike right now. And it's not something that, you know, taking the word transitory off of it. Shipping costs have gone through the roof, raw materials and, and the supply chain is stressed. You know, prices that, you know, distributors and whatnot are paying for product at a certain point, it has to be passed on to the, to the consumer. Um, otherwise, people go out of business. And, you know, the government's pretty been, at least GSA has been fairly inflexible or not clear as to how it's approaching that. You know, that's a direct economic issue at this point in time. So, I mean, there's a lot of work on that side of things to do. My other, you know, kind of impression, you went where I was thinking when you mentioned Germany, you know, this is a lot bigger place than Germany. So I could see your point for cities like New York and other places, but it's not, you know, one size isn't going to fit all for a place. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just use that as an example. So the postal service has, if I'm correct, about a thousand bicycles total in its fleet, but it only uses them in climates where the bikes are comfortable four seasons a year. Well, what if we use them in places where they could ride three seasons a year or two seasons a year? Bottom line is all these incremental things matter. The other thing is, it is absolutely true that the rural routes are different than the urban routes, but the total number of really big metropolitan areas around here, I mean, we got a fair number of them. So it seems to me that Nothing has to be all or nothing. But I think one of the things that we're really hearing from the climate community today is we're at the point where we have to try everything. We can't afford to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We need dramatic changes and we need every incremental improvement we can because we're running out of time. So I I think that we really, really need to start thinking a little bit more creatively. Well, Steve, you know what? We're right up on the break. So, and when we come back, um, I guess for our last segment, I guess we're going to finally have to talk about the FAR a little bit more (laughs) and maybe some of, and then sum it up with some of your recommendations. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He is a National Sabinic Government uh, Professor of Government Procurement at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He's a Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement at the George Washington University Law School. We're talking sustainability and, you know, and we're at the the, the final segment, Steve, and now we can talk, you know, directly like uh, changes to the FAR, changes to procurement strategies. Uh, you touched on it in the last segment about life cycle cost. Um, but strategies or thinking about how you kind of implement that within the system. Um, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Okay. So let's just use the FAR uh, classic rubric, and I'll go at a pretty good clip, but let me just mention the things that I think it would make sense if we were doing a strategic holistic approach to making the FAR cognizant of the need for sustainable procurement. So uh, the obvious first place to start would be in FAR Part 23. Uh, That would be all about awareness and basic information. But you totally need to reorganize FAR Part 23, which is a little bit of a grab bag. And you have to replace some of the parts in there to basically walk through what the environmental goals are, what you're trying to do, and how you think about it strategically. All right. Then let's kind of separate the world because we do this all the time, particularly in your community. There's some easy stuff we could do in the FAR to address the high volume, low dollar value or commercial type procurements 
And here I'm thinking about stuff in FAR parts 12 or 13. Let me just call this the low-hanging fruit stuff. It would be really easy to basically say for a micro-purchase or a simplified acquisition threshold, simplified acquisition procurement, that if you're buying a good, it's got to have an echo label like an energy star for information technology. Or you have to buy off the GSA's Advantage Environmental Program aisle or both, right? But if you don't buy something with an appropriate echo label or buy through GSA Advantage's environmental program aisle, you have to do a determination and findings or you have to paper the record. That would be pretty easy. But we're talking tens of millions of transactions a year. I think FAR Part 36 is the easiest one because I think that GSA is pretty good on LEED, L-E-E-D. And as I mentioned earlier, if you haven't looked at their SF tool, their sustainable facilities tool, that's a wonderful resource. But we probably need to buck that up a little bit. All right, let's go back in terms of how we normally approach things. FAR Part 7, acquisition planning. If you go to FAR 7.105B17, FAR 7.105B17, there's some guidance there about environmentally preferable procurement, but it's buried and it's not very helpful. So I think that's got to be reprioritized and cleaned up a little bit. As most of us know from generation ago, we could do some really good work in FAR Part 15. Just like we required an evaluation factor for past performance, we could do the same thing with regard to greenhouse gases or sustainability. And if nothing else, we could simply integrate some kind of an evolving benchmark like science-based targets or scope one, two, or three emissions. FAR Part 16, this is what you and I were talking about earlier, incentives and disincentives. Just like the old ESPCs, the Energy Saving Performance Contracts, we should be willing to pay more for firms that give us less harmful solutions, and we should penalize the firms that don't. Another thing we're going to have to do is we need to upgrade FAR Part 46, which is quality assurance. Um, we can't afford to have greenwashing or whitewashing. If a contractor promises to reduce emissions, we're going to have to confirm they actually do it, and that's going to require specialized technical knowledge. To the extent that I mentioned greenwashing, in a lot of countries, we're seeing action or activity around issues like responsibility and suspension and debarment. So think about FAR Part 9. If you are a consistent polluter, if you don't make good on your environmental promises, maybe you need to be barred from the uh, government marketplace. And then, of course, what we really need to do is focus on metrics or performance measurement. As we know from the small business examples, what gets measured gets managed. So I think we need some different language in FAR subpart 4.6 in terms of contract reporting. Um, did someone actually look at the echo labels? Is this an environmentally preferable solution? Or are we doing something that we could have done much better? So I think those are the easy things. And of course, there's more, but um, time is of the essence. Yeah, amongst those things, you could you know translate those to you know, there's the regulations, but then there's, you have to, it has to be, you know, translates into the training of the acquisition workforce and making it part of the culture. Of those recommendations, the one that strikes me sort of the most important to me is, um, and I'd just like to get your thoughts, is the life, I mean, 
granted, you'd like to have most of them or all of them, depending on your perspective, right? Some, but the 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 issue of of life cycle cost or and the tyranny and low price, I keep going back to that. Is you know, if the government wants to um, assess value in a certain way and accomplish certain things, it is by the very nature going to cost more. So trying to address that tyranny low price seems to me like that's a linchpin of this. I, I'm not sure if you agree or not. Oh, but no. I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. And to some extent, you just put your finger on a global best practice. If you read the global ISO on sustainable procurement, if you read what countries around the world are doing, almost everyone realizes that what you have to do is rethink your value proposition. It is always going to be easier and less expensive to just do what we did before. But now what we need to do is reorient our thinking and make sure that we are paying what things actually cost. And what the, what the carbon tax is all about is just making producers pay their fair share for the harms they generate. So, I mean, I think that I think you're spot on with their uh, low prices are not our friend here. And we need to think a little bit more proactively about what we're trying to do. Yeah, and we have about a minute left, Steve. So I want to ask you another follow-up question because I think I mean you've talked about this too. Is is uh, it's not just you know the it's also there's opportunities. You know, you you observed earlier in the show that the private sector is way ahead of the federal government on this. So just you know, letting the private sector help. How do you translate in that? And what what are some sort of concrete things. And you know, number one would be talking to the private sector more about it. Absolutely. So I think that's a really important point. But let, let's just keep this in mind. This is going to be hard, and we need to make sustainable procurement a core competency in the acquisition community, but we don't need to reinvent the wheel. So as you say, let's talk to the private sector. Let's talk to the experts who have studied it, and let's think about how people are addressing this rather than assuming there is a government-only solution. And what we know from experience is that means we shouldn't wait for Congress or the FAR Council. We should start experimenting. We should run some pilots. We should do some measurement and see what's working. But going back to the point you just made, if you have one takeaway from all this, the most important thing to do about climate change is talk about it. Read, think, understand it, engage with others, because this is a massively important issue. And if we ignore it, we can't do anything about it. Right. On that note, Steve, uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me once again. And the next time you come back, we'll talk about, we'll do a potpourri on all kinds of different procurement (laughs) issues. So, Okay. We'll we'll include sustainability, I promise, but we'll do some other stuff too. Okay. Thanks so much. Yeah, great. I want to thank my guest today, Steve Schooner. He's a national civic a professor of government procurement at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.